Snap Studios. Snaps. Like all the men in my family, I can throw down in the kitchen, right? Turkey for sure. But the pork belly, the greens, the pepper stick, candy yam, y'all don't know from Glenn's Brussels sprouts. Got the cornbread, the dressings over there, the biscuits with the gibbet gravy, the creamiest mashed potatoes you ever tasted. Grandmama's macaroni and cheese, the real stuff. The real cranberry sauce. We got some garlic crab and finish it off with the sweetest of sweet, sweet potato pie. That's how we do. And no matter that my boy is vegan now, and this little girl has blossomed into something called a pescatarian with the sole exception of orange chicken, or that some of the invitees have gluten sensitivities, and others can only consume booze. I don't mind. I don't mind. I can cook around that. Through that, make do. Everyone who walks through that door is going to get fed. Everybody. And I feel good about that, Snappers. And it feels good to feel good. Thankful. Because this has been a hard year. For so many reasons, it's been so hard. Nationally, it feels like we're fighting round three of our ongoing civil war. And personally, well, personally, it's been really hard too. And I forget, I forget how good it is to make a meal, to sit at a table without a phone, with people who, no matter how deeply they may find me lacking, they still love me. And for that, I feel grateful. And that's why today on Snap Judgment, we proudly present our annual gratitude special with some extra whipped cream. These are just some of the stories that left us thankful over the past year. My name is Glenn Washington. Cut yourself a big slice. Bigger. Bigger. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Snap Judgment. Now then, we begin the gratitude special in Liberia. Back in 2014, producer Jake Halpern spoke to Dr. Philip Ireland. We hadn't seen any patients yet. We were preparing for it um, along the borders, the Ministry of Health. They are telling us, you guys have to prepare and we will help you prepare. You have to learn to wear these personal protective gear. Get ready, get ready, get ready. Okay, It, it was almost like that kind of call. In the capital, Monrovia, in Liberia, Dr. Philip Ireland worked at JFK Hospital, and at the time... We were not prepared at all. The hospital, we were at an all-time low. We had nothing, and we were susceptible to all kinds of things. Even before they could learn how to use their new protective gear, people started showing up at JFK Hospital from the outlying areas. This patient, a 47-year-old Liberian female, She came to the hospital and she walks through the door. She's bleeding from almost every orifice. She's vomiting blood. She has fever, chest pain. She's lethargic. She has low levels of energy. She can't hardly move. 
and I knew that she probably had Ebola. This is the epicenter of the outbreak. In a city of a million, almost 50 new cases are reported every day. Liberia's tiny band of healthcare workers are throwing everything they have at Ebola. The particular woman, when she came in, she almost fell from the wheelchair. We had a physician assistant by the name of Stephen Vincent, and he attempted to stop that fall by reaching out and grabbing her. And he, he said, Ireland, this woman, she was falling and I held her. This is how I knew that he touched the patient. And he said, I'm very concerned because I don't know what's gonna happen. What did you tell him? Well, I, I, I didn't know, I, I didn't tell him anything specific. We just brushed it off as men, we don't think anything will happen to us. Even if they could live in denial for a moment, as soon as the test results came back for the 47-year-old woman, it showed she was positive for Ebola, and they would have to implement emergency protocols. Anytime a patient is suspected of having Ebola, they will be taken to the ETUs, we call them. The Ebola treatment unit. Yeah. It's a secluded area outside of the hospital. You have uh, about multiple layers of triaging. You have all kinds of disinfecting um, systems. And can you tell us what happens, how, how it progresses? What happens to Mr. Vincent? Did they send him to the Ebola treatment unit? No, he's still in the hospital at the time. Why? Why don't they send him to the ETU? Okay, so at that time, the the discussion, because this is fam... Okay, okay let me just put it that way. He is part of this clinical staff. Vincent is family. This is what makes it so difficult to contain Ebola. The symptoms of sweating, vomiting, and bleeding, they all spread the virus. And if it's hard enough for a doctor to take care of their own in a hospital, imagine for a second what it's like in the homes, trying to take care of a sick loved one. In Liberia, if, if a child is sick and, and the mother is there, the first thing she will do is touch. Okay, she will hold, she will try to feed, she will try to give the... And even if you tell her it's dangerous, she will definitely do it. And so that's why um, the public health intervention of not touching and not caring and not uh, doing... It didn't work out from the beginning, okay? Because mothers, especially mothers, you will have to... In, in, in West Africa, you will have to tell them all kinds of things. And, and one of the ways the public health guys did it was to tell them, if you touch, you should put um, a plastic bag on your hand. But if you told them not to touch at all, it wasn't really happening. Just like Liberian mothers all over the country, Dr. Ireland faced a dilemma. What now? How could he help Stephen Vincent now that he had tested positive for Ebola? I had people telling me to, to stay away from Vincent, but then again, it's like, that's your colleague. Okay, so you've been working with these guys for many years, and then all of a sudden he's sick uh, with a um, life-threatening virus, and then I didn't feel too good about that. Ebola is extremely contagious, and the rest of the hospital staff was legitimately scared. Dr. Ireland kept reminding himself that all he had to do was follow proper protocols and rely on his training when he was caring for Stephen Vincent. Once I was so tired and I listened to his chest and I remember I put the stethoscope on my neck and I went to disinfect it. I don't know, probably it touched me some kind of way. I don't, I, I, I don't remember the exact point. 
if there was a moment, was that the moment you think that you, at least the one you remember? Probably. Now, it's hard for people to pinpoint exactly when they contract the virus. But Dr. Ireland came home from work one day and he was feeling extremely tired. Then I noticed at the time that I hadn't eaten anything for the entire day. And I had a mild fever. My heart is racing. And I'm thinking, wow, this is part of the symptom of Ebola. And I asked my wife and all the rest of the people to, to not touch me, to not come near me. Um, they should go other places because I'm sick. I don't know what I have. And so they um, semi-quarantined me in my room. But his eight-year-old daughter, Precious, she couldn't figure out why dad was locked up in his bedroom. She was curious, and so somehow she manages to find the key. She opens the door, and she came in the bedroom barefooted. She's standing right before me. She's like about three feet, and I'm walking away from her. I was terrified. I was terrified. Dr. Ireland frantically called for someone to come get her. And then he turns to his wife and says, leave me here and go to our house in the countryside. So she piles everyone in the car. But Dr. Ireland's mother, who also lived with them, well, when it came time for her to leave. She said, I'm not going. I'm not going anywhere. No, he couldn't walk around. He couldn't do anything by himself. So who gave him food and water and, and drink? Who would take care of him if everyone left him there? So I'm asking her to leave because of her safety. I wouldn't even listen. And she refuses. I don't have strength um, to do a lot of arguing. By this time, that 47-year-old woman who had given the disease to Stephen Vincent, she had passed away. And Dr. Ireland didn't want the same thing to happen to his own mom. I could get it myself. But if anybody else stay, they will get it faster because the others are not as careful as I would be. Mrs. Ireland knew that if she wanted to save her son, first, she had to protect herself. And I look at myself and I said, oh, and I just have on a house dress to go attend to him. And so I have to add on a raincoat. I had a, a raincoat. So she decided to make her very own Ebola protection suit. I had uh, a pack of gloves for the use to put chemicals in your to perm your hair. Still, she knew that was not going to cut it. She had to be covered from head to toe. So I put that on and I put on gloves and I put some my feet in a plastic bag. Two plastic bags, tied them around my shoes. Then I added my spring coat and it had a cat, a cap, and I just placed it on too. The suit, well, it made it hard for Mrs. Ireland to show her affection and take care of her son the way a mother would. And here he was, no one could touch him, but just bring whatever he needed and put it down. He was yelling and crying for the pain in his head my head, my head, all through the night. I started to vomit and I started to have diarrhea that couldn't stop. And I'm slipping in and out of sleep. Then he told me, I'm sleeping too much. Mom, if you don't hear me talk for a long time, just uh, wake me up, okay? I went to the door and I talked to him. I had a headache 
any fever. And if you open the door, just talk to him. Try to eat something, but just to have something in your system to fight whatever you have to fight. With his mom inside the house taking care of him, outside the house, his cousins, his neighbors, his friends, they all gathered around. And Dr. Ireland could actually hear them from his window. Family members broke out in terrible cries. I mean, loud, woeful crying, wailing, all on the ground and groveling. And oh, yeah, people, people cried. When you hear that cry in Liberia, that's like, man, he's going to die. After four days of watching over her son pretty obsessively, Mrs. Ireland heard the sound of jazz coming from Philip's room. So she opens the door, and she finds her son sitting up in his chair, just strumming on the guitar. And I told Dr. Johnson, I said, oh, he was playing his guitar. I said, playing his guitar? I said, yes, he was playing his guitar today. We're all very happy. It's very encouraging. At that moment, did you feel like, wow, maybe we beat this? Maybe it's over? Yes, of course. But then it started deteriorating. It goes on like this for days, until finally an ambulance pulls up outside his house. And several of his old med school buddies jump out, and they're dressed in real Ebola containment suits. They tell him they found him a spot at an Ebola treatment unit at a different hospital. And when they arrived at this place, it was called Samaritan Purse, they gave him a bed in their ETU, right next to, of all people, Stephen Vincent, his old friend. And as bad as Dr. Ireland felt, Stephen Vincent had it even worse. He was grimacing, that he was in a lot of pain. And he was just breathing. He had this agonal breathing going on. I said, Vincent, you have a beautiful wife and children. We are going to get better, and we're going back to the emergency service at JFK. Aren't we going, Vincent? And I tried to get him to talk, but he wouldn't talk to me. And so I just stopped. At this point, Dr. Ireland is so tired and beaten down by the sickness that he just collapses back into sleep. When I wake up from my sleep, Vincent is not moving, he's not breathing, and I call him several times. He was just lying there and not moving. I got real concerned and I started to call for the clinicians to come in to help or, or to see what happened. I'm still very, 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 very sick. So there is only a certain amount of energy I can use to maintain this. And so when I run out of energy, I just stop and I just stare at Vincent. I just stare, I just continue to stare at him. I am not shouting anymore. I just stare at, stared at um, Vincent. I know that he's gone. And so I'm just silent. Uh, One of the things that's going through my mind was that, wow, He had his children and his wife. They will have to hear this news, and it will not be good. It's not a good thing. I was thinking about mom. I wonder if she's infected or not. Vincent had expired. I wonder how many more of us at the hospital uh, this will affect. I I wasn't thinking about, man, would you make it? The news was bad. As the Ebola virus spread, it claimed the lives of several top doctors who Dr. Ireland had known for years. But here, in the care of this ETU, they were battling on, patient by patient. A physician assistant by the name of Patrick came in. He cleaned from every crevice on my body, removed the filth of diarrhea and vomiting from on me. And as he's cleaning me, 
He's telling me, man, you're going to make it. We're going to go back and do procedures together at the hospital. He puts me back on the bed, reestablishes the IV line and put fluids up and give me my medication. And then tells me that he would be back the next uh, shift to see me. And after that, I felt so, so positive. I felt much, much better. And I marked this time as the beginning of my, my healing process. Dr. Ireland was released to home care to make room for more patients. And when he finally gets back to his house, all of his relatives are there, just lined up in the driveway. Well, everyone except for his mother. She had to be quarantined. The doctors needed a window of time to make sure that her homemade suit had done the trick, that had kept her safe. It took 21 days, and they finally said she was okay. And yeah, you can now see your son. So after my 21 days, then I came to see him. And he was already eating you. He was still not too strong, and he was in his bed. Oh, it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful. I got in the, in the house. That way he saw me. <laughs> he said, here, is, here comes the real doctor. <laughs> it, was, it was wonderful. It was just a wonderful feeling. I, I just look at her and say thank you, you know. The best mom in the world. I've told her that I love her very, very much. I've said thank you probably over a thousand times. <laughs> She's like, enough already. Her reaction is almost like, that's my duty. This is something that we should all do. This is why I'm here. Okay, so she has that attitude all the time. Yeah, it was like doing your duty. I mean, it just fell into place that it was your responsibility to do this, and you were doing it as you did it before. I mean, it wasn't anything strange. I mean, it was just falling in place. What you had to do, you did. One love. The mama bear, the amazing, the spectacular, the stupendous Victoria Collins Ireland. And big love as well to her son, Dr. Philip Ireland, for speaking with the snap. Original score composed and performed by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Jake Halpern, with assistance from Mark Ristich, Anna Sussman, Adiza Egan, and Eliza Smith. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, know this we're filming the biggest baddest Snap Judgment live show ever and you are invited December 1st at Oakland's historic Paramount Theater. Tickets available right now at snapjudgment.org. Now, when Snap Judgment returns, someone's going to hear the voice of God when the Snap Judgment Gratitude episode continues. Back to Step Judgment, the gratitude special. Now, I know it was difficult for our next guest, Raymond Christian, growing up in a poor area of Richmond, Virginia. But the stories this man has, I am thankful for the stories that he brings to life, especially when they involve the voice of God. Step Judgment. And I was always wondering why I never heard it. One specific example. I'm sitting in the pews, I'm 12 years old. There was a rumor going around the church that uh, the pastor of our church was having affairs with various women in the church. 
One of the ladies that uh, he was accused of having an affair with, she wanted to make a comment about another woman he was allegedly having an affair with. So she stood, so she came to church and she stood up to testify. She said, God came to me and he said, go to her house and slap that in her face. The church erupted. Elder Moore stood up in the church almost having a seizure. And he said that God came to him the other day and he told me to tell her to stop spreading those lies. Some people started to cry. Some people were saying, there's Satan in the church. There's Satan in this church. And it would be things like that I would hear and go like, wow, God is spending a lot of time in our little bitty church. On schedule, you know, using the right diction and everything. And I can remember hearing that and asking my mama, what, how, how does that work? Does, does God like say, like slap on the left side of the face, the right side, explain this to me. And she kept telling me, shut up, shut up, shut up, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. Now my stepdaddy Leroy, he was also a believer. He was a believer that God spoke to you, but apparently God never said nothing to him about being drunk all the time or keeping a steady job. Now he was an unusual guy. He was a country boy. He was scared of white people. He was illiterate. I mean, he would try to bring me books. General Psychopathology, Sex After 60, Ron L. Hubbard's Dianetics. Now, but, but I'm 12. At one time, they had a, a gospel group showed up at the church. The gospel group is doing their thing, going up the aisle, going up on the stage, and they're introducing each member as they go up as part of their routine. Here comes Leroy. Leroy decides he's going to join in. Like, you know, it's five members of the group. Like, wow, it's a sixth guy. And they're like, who's this guy? Who's this guy? But they're being performers. So they, uh, they go like, all right, we got us an extra member. Thanks a lot, brother. Thanks for helping us out. And, but he don't want to leave. He don't want to leave the stage. And the microphone starts squeaking, you know, and he's telling them, you know, get your damn hands off of me. I paid money to come up in here. And my mother probably, that probably took 10 years off her life. He would do something like that and you'd wish death on him, you know. I might have had that prayer too, a couple dozen times. <laughs> Me and my stepdad didn't really have a relationship. About the only thing that we could ever come together on was fishing. So one time I had these two chickens, you know, brown and hen. And I had begged my mama to buy them for me. I loved them. I played with them all the time. I had them on my head and I would put them in the bed, have them follow me through the house, and I'd spread out a little corn and try to get them to walk around a maze and just played with them all the time. And on this particular day, I was extra anxious to get home because they were starting to grow and they could really get up a little bit. I went in the house and I opened the door and it was a chicken foot on the floor. I just broke out into tears. I didn't need to know. Yeah, the man, the man killed my pet chickens. As soon when I walked in, I picked up the chicken foot, and I went inside. And in the sink, there the chickens were already plucked. I was heartbroken. And his his explanation for that was, uh, "What the hell else are you supposed to do with a chicken?" So my sister Janice and I, we would always like to get back at him and 
food with my stepdaddy after he had messed with us for a little while. So my sister Janet, she came up with this brilliant idea that uh, it would really be funny if we took the walkie-talkie that I had got for Christmas and uh, put Wonder under the bed and started talking to him. Like, Man, yeah, that sounds funny to me too. So we got the walkie-talkie, slipped one under the bed and went to the other room and we started giggling and she was telling me, go ahead, say something, say something. So I said, Leroy, Leroy. And he mumbled, and he woke up and he's, what? What, 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 what is it? And then I didn't know what to say. I was looking at my sister. I expected him to respond, but I didn't think he would think that the, that artificial sound of the walkie-talkie was real. I just decided to say, Leroy, this is God. And he said, oh my God, God, you want me, you want me. And he fell down on his knees and started crying, oh God, what are you trying to tell me, God? So I looked at my sister and we're giggling. I'm going like, what, what do I say now? What do I say? She goes, say something, say something, say something else. Uh, Leroy, don't eat no more grits and sausages. He said, huh, what? What do you mean, God? I said, don't eat no more damn grits and sausages. He said, okay, okay, God, okay. When my mama came home, he wanted to explain to her, Annie, I, I spoke to God today. But she didn't want to hear that because she knew that he wasn't working and he was home drunk. But then she really thought he lost it when he went in the kitchen. He went in the fridge and he pulled out the sausage, he grabbed a bag of grits and threw them in the damn garbage can. She was really pissed off then. So that really changed him because after that little event, as I was growing up, every time he would be embarrass me in some way or I wanted to get him to change his behavior in some way, I would often invoke the word of God. I would say things to him like, Leroy, stop drinking. Leroy, put that whiskey down. Of course, it didn't work because he would just find a new spot to hide it. I would always find his hidden spots. I would say things like, I found your spot, Leroy. And he would go, no, God, I'm, 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 I'm trying to do better. No, you're not. He came to school drunk and embarrassed me from eighth grade, you know. The world came to an end. Even though we're playing pranks on my stepfather, that was probably the, the most personal contact I would have with him is, is, is pranking him because we just, again, we didn't talk. And I did that for years and years and years, right up until the high school was over. I didn't want to hang around and see if I was going to get a job at the factory. I joined the Army, and I came home on leave. And he was really happy to see me. I was, I'm going to take you fishing. He wanted to spend time with me. So that night that I was home, he had been drinking a lot. Well, he kept telling me, we're going to go fishing, we're going to go fishing. I got this bait, and this is going to be special. And the banner went back and forth, and, you know, my mama was enjoying that. But more, more than ever before, he was really going on and on, more than he ever did. He wanted to ask me questions about the Army, what was the food like, do they beat us up, did they kill anybody? And I just joined, you know, nothing like that. And he was yakking his head off. So I left the room to go into another room, and he was still talking to me through the door. Do y'all do any fishing in the Army? Do they eat fish? Do they cook fish? They got you peeling real potatoes or what? And I was going, oh, man, no, 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 no. I got plenty of time. You know, yeah, we'll talk about it tomorrow.
And I decided, so what am I going to do? And I said, oh. And so I decided to hit him again with God. I'd let God speak to him. And as he continued to talk, I got to the keyhole and I cupped my hand around my mouth. And I said, Leroy. He said, what? What? Leroy, go to bed and think about it. And he got real quiet. <laughs> I could hear him shuffling back to the room. And I'm thinking to myself, success, yeah, hey, just like old times. So the next day, we did go fishing. And we were fishing at this place along the James River, a series of bridges that go across the river, and they're all good for fishing. So we were there on the bridge, and we were fishing, and I told him, listen, I'm going to leave this spot. And you see down in the river, that island down there? I'd fished there dozens of times before. So I told my stepdad, I'm going to go down on an island and fish because I know I can do better than you can. He said, you think? I'm not giving out any fishing lessons. I said, I'm not giving out any fishing lessons. Kind of playful banter. So I went down to the island, and it was absolutely perfect. The water is rushing from all sides. It's beautiful. It's sparkly. The fish are biting. Ah, catfish, brim, crappy, bass. A good fishing hole in that particular spot. And from the island, I could look up at the bridge and I could see traffic passing by. I see some flashing red lights, probably an accident. Those things are common on the bridge. So I just go back to fishing. And I'm having a good time fishing down there. So after about an hour, I decide I'm going to take, and I think I got about 15 fish. I'm going to take them back up there and show him what I had caught where I was at. So I'm bobbing my way back to the bridge. I couldn't wait. There's no way that he could have caught nearly as many fish as I could. I couldn't wait to give him a hard time. But before I could get to him, and these three guys, three guys who had been fishing, just stopped me. They were right in front of me. They said, uh, Leroy is gone. I said, going where? Is he moving to another fishing spot? No, no, he, uh, he got sick and uh, he passed out. And they had to take him away. Passed out? Going to the hospital, I, I was only gone about an hour. I was gobsmacked by that. This is not good. My heart started beating real fast. So I gather up all my things, all my gear, and I rush to the hospital. But on the way to the hospital, I started saying to myself, God, if you do exist, let's make this right. Talk to me. I would have done anything. I would have stripped buck naked. I would have listened to anybody, the boogeyman, Anybody that would have uh, made this thing right. I go right to the emergency room. I go inside. I go up to the desk, and I, and I tell the lady, and I say, I think my father might have uh, came in here. They said he had passed out or something. Surely I'm waiting for the lady to say, no, that didn't happen. Everything's all right. And she says, hold on a second. And she said, a doctor will come out here and speak for you. The doctor comes out, and he says, can I speak to you in the back? He takes me to an examining room. It's really sterile. There's nothing in there at all. No other patients, no paperwork. I don't even know why he's taking me there because I'm still praying to God. There's still one more opportunity for you to speak to me and tell me everything's going to be all right. And, and God finally answered me in the form of a doctor. And he says to me, I'm sorry. He has passed. And I didn't need to, that was it. I had my answer. He didn't give me any more details, and he put it so plainly 
I started thinking about, I was just with him. All he wanted, all he wanted from me the day before, he just wanted my time. He didn't want money, he didn't want anything physical, he didn't want me to do anything. He just wanted a little bit of time. Years later, when I was in the Army, I was in the field in Korea, and we hadn't eaten in a while. Uh, resupply hadn't caught up with us out in the field. When it finally did, and it was just all sausage and grits. And I might have been the only person there who was thinking to himself, this right here, yeah, this is a sin. And everybody started laughing. What are you talking about? Tried to relate back in my mind to me saying to Leroy, don't eat no more sausages and grits. And I don't think he ate any more until the day he died. These army grits were probably the worst grits in the world. But I never loved sausages and grits as much as I did that day. I think I ate double, maybe triple. Thank you, Ray Christian, for your story. Check out this podcast, What's Ray Saying? Go ahead, do it right now. We'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. That original score was performed and composed by Renzo Gorio. The story was produced by Davey Kim. In just a moment, what if that crazy rumor about the creature in the woods turns out to be true? When the gratitude episode continues, stay tuned. WMIC Studios and the Snap Judgment Underground Lair. Welcome back to Snap, the gratitude special. Now, put on your winter coat and some thermal underwear because we're heading out to the cold, rocky shores of Alaska. Because for Lynn Sculler, there was nothing better than being alone in the wilderness. Snap Judgment. When I was a, growing up up in Anchorage, you know, back in the late 60s and early 70s, I had heard of blue bears, and you'd hear the stories about them, you know, like they were these uh, bears that lived up on the glaciers and never came down, and that's why they were this pale gray-blue color, and other people would say how they knew of somebody who knew somebody who uh, shot one, but I certainly never never saw one and didn't know anybody who, who had seen one. It uh, always seemed so elusive and special, it just uh, was below the radar all the time. I got into the guiding business because shortly after I moved down to southeast Alaska here, um, through a strange sequence of events, I actually wound up working for a law firm. And I've always played a game with myself where I asked myself what I would do if a doctor told me I only had two years to live. I decided, sitting there at my desk, you know, with a screen in front of me and a suit and tie on, that I would want to spend all of that time outdoors in wild places on my own, answering to nothing social or cultural or none of those expectations of how you should look or be or act. I went out and got a Master Mariner's license uh, from the United States Coast Guard and built a boat to do this with and uh, started a more or less a water charter freight service here in southeast Alaska. I would work 115, 125 days straight, exhaust myself. Winter would come, I'd just kind of hunker down and get through it however best I could and then uh, prepare for the next season. It, uh, it suited me. I didn't have the latitude, I didn't have uh, 
the mental playroom to let some very disturbing things from my past that had been eating at me for a long time keep running around and around in my head. When I was 21 years old, a woman that I was very attached to was, uh, disappeared. You know, of course, after we had searched all the woods around her cabin and done everything we could do to figure out where she went and why she left her dogs alone and why there was food rotting in the refrigerator and what could have happened, uh, turned out that she had been abducted and uh, was murdered. Never knowing exactly who was involved, that cast a very long shadow over everything else. I didn't trust anybody. I didn't want to be close. I was not sure that the general cut of humanity was desirable company. I was 36 when I started working on getting the boat together and preferred to be alone. One day the phone rang and it was uh, Micha Hoshino, a Japanese fellow I could tell from his accent, and it turned out he was one of the best wildlife photographers in the world, if maybe even the best, and had a huge rock star following in Japan. He wanted to hire me to take a film crew out for six weeks. And my initial reaction was no way. The thought of having four people in an eight by 10 area for weeks on end sounded more like uh, the best analogy was a prison cell. But there was something in his approach that made me consider it. He just wanted to go out in the woods or on the water and see the most beautiful things he could see and try to take good photos of it. So I, I took the job. Within uh, a couple of hours of having him on the boat getting ready and everything, I realized that I liked him, which was kind of unusual, you know, to right away just like somebody. He was such a calm presence that you didn't feel like you had to be on your guard at all. I wasn't used to asking anybody for anything. And so I very reluctantly asked him if he would teach me something about photography. And he immediately agreed. I had uh, taken Micho way up on a hillside where there's a stand of interstadial stumps and he was setting up, taking some photos. And, and he suddenly, uh, he just stepped aside and motioned at his camera that he had on a tripod there and pointed down at a just a stump and some rocks. And I, I put my eye up to the viewfinder. There was this beautiful composition, a lot of smooth stones of different colors nestled into the curve of a root. It was like the root and these stones that were millions of years old had this intimacy between them. As if I was looking at a Madonna or a photo of a mother holding a baby. How did he see that in that pile of rubble that I was standing on? And that was fascinating to me. It was kind of a, an eye-opener about what photography could be like. He told me once that every photo should tell a story. And after he explained that to me, I started recognizing that in his work. He uh, asked me one day if I thought we could find a blue bear. And I said, not a chance. Going looking for a blue bear is going to be like looking for a yeti or, you know, a snow leopard. But he kept bringing it up. He kept asking me how we could find a blue bear. I started digging into it and gathering up all the information, and, and we started uh, making trips to some of these areas where there seemed like there might be a chance. He understood that bears can be very dangerous, 
but he also appreciated living with bears. He was adopted into the bear clan of the Clinket Indians. One of our trips together, we had been up into a, a fjord region where I'd heard a rumor of a blue bear and spent several days without any success, no sign of it. One of those days where it's just so calm, you could you know, see seagulls landing on the water half a mile away and, and no wind at all. And we decided to make a run and see if we could find some humpback whales. This was very late in the autumn. This weather front hit us, went from blowing maybe five knots to 20 to 40 to 50. And then I don't know how hard it was blowing. It was just blowing like hell. And the seas built up almost faster than I can describe it like big gray animals coming at us out of the dark. And my boat, the Wilderness Swift, is only 31 feet long. It was out of control. I did not think we were gonna make it. Michio uh, asked me how it looked. I lied, I said, we'll be okay. The Swift is a good boat, we'll make it. And so he said, okay, he laid down. I kept steering the boat and praying and was dry mouth with fear. And I looked back and Michio was sleeping. He was, he was asleep, and the boat was just being thrown helter-skelter all over the place. Somehow or other, we managed to make it and tuck into a little hole I knew about up there and get into shelter. Micho got up and looked around and said, oh, okay. He immediately started making dinner, you know? <laughs> I was just clammy with sweat and stank from fear and, and was just so amazed to still be alive. And when I asked him uh, if he wasn't afraid, he said, uh, well, you said we'd be all right. And it just struck me how, how he believed me. He trusted me to be right. I'm glad I didn't make a liar out of myself. I found myself putting in extra effort to try to hunt down a, an elusive blue bear, talking to biologists, calling up other naturalists and guides, digging through the records in the library, going through old magazines, and just trying to parse up any little reference to the blue bear. It was intense. You know, my, my intention was to do the very best I could for Micho. It got to where everything else uh, was just filling in the, the time between our, our trips. We would have the kind of conversations I'd never had with anybody before. We were at anchor, you know, in a little, little cove, and we were in the cabin of the boat. We had coffee after dinner, you know, so fresh smell of coffee and sitting there in the light of a 12-volt white bulb and the windows are open and outside there's there's the darkness, you know, and it's, it's quiet. And there's a sense of a, a really big world out there waiting, you know, and that's, that was the, that was the first time in our conversations, you know, when, when we were talking about all his successes and you know, he had a show at the Carnegie Museum. He had a show in, in Tokyo that 10,000 people attended the opening day. They were doing documentaries of him. His books were selling very well. And then just out of the blue, he said, I would trade all of this to have a family. And I realized that he was lonely. And that really hit me. Having those kind of conversations at night became one of the things that I look forward to the most. You know, gradually realizing that what I really enjoyed here was this uh, open, intimate connection about what we really thought and felt. Sometimes he would ask my advice, you know, on <laughs> on uh, on how to get what he wanted, which was 
I was the last person you ought to be asking uh, how you'd go about getting married. And it kind of snuck up on me that all of a sudden I had this close, good friend. And then one day he called me up and I could tell immediately that he was just vibrating with excitement. Micho had made a trip back to Japan and I asked him what was going on. And he said, I met her. Who? What? Tell me about it. And he said, her name is Naoko. We're going to get married pretty soon. I'm, in, I'm embarrassed to admit that my reaction was, oh no. Instead of being happy for him, I thought I was afraid it was going to mean the end of our, our trips, that he was going to disappear. You know, he was going to fade out of my life. And then that passed pretty quickly. His uh, excitement was contagious. And a year or so later, he got married and uh, had a son. But then he came, came to Juno with his family, and uh, he still had hopes for finding the blueberry. I was kind of elated that it wasn't going to change that much, and it looked like we were definitely going to be making another trip. It was some months later that uh, I called Michu up. I was all very excited and uh, said, I know where there's a blueberry. We can, we can go to this place. Only Micho couldn't go when I thought we needed to go. We put it on hold, and I had another charter. After being out for a week or 10 days with those, that crew, I pulled into a little village named Cake and went to a payphone to call in and get all my messages at home. There were probably half a dozen or more messages from people calling to tell me that Micho was dead. Micho was working, doing his photography with his film crew in the Kamchatka Brown Bear Preserve. In the middle of the night, this bear who had been hanging around too close to camp and breaking into things took Micho out of his tent and uh, killed him. I remember standing in that little restaurant, that cafe on the payphone, and this incredible void opened up. I literally don't remember the rest of the day. You know, just get back out on the water, find wildlife for these photographers, you know, set up, wait for the light, pay attention to the weather. But I wasn't present somehow. You know, it's like I was just watching myself do this stuff, not having any idea what the future might be, or if there was a future, if it was worth thinking about. Just loss. The following spring, I'd lined up trips for the spring and uh, was with a couple of photographers that I wasn't getting along with. You know, looking back, I probably was not in the best frame of mind. We were anchored off in uh, a fairly remote area. There was no wind, but there was the sound of water, you know, the sea moving, all the thousands of tiny little bubbles and pops and clicks and all you hear from different bivalves being exposed, kind of thing where it, at first it, it seems silent and quiet and still, but when you really start listening, there's just kind of a constant you know, little murmuration of, of movement and life. And a bear walked out onto the beach, got to looking, and there was something different about it. I put the skiff in the water and got a little closer, and it was this husky, well-furred, heavily muscled animal with this kind of smoky gray coat that blended into the 
all of the glacial erratic stones and the cobbles and things. It looked like a dark gray stone. Sure enough, it was a blue bear. I broke every rule I had about approaching wildlife. I've always made it a point to try to not bother the animals, not intervene. But I just kept drifting closer and closer and closer. And the skiff is in a couple of inches of water. I might have even stepped out of the skiff and started walking towards it if it hadn't just suddenly spun around and was looking at me and just picked up my camera that Micho had talked me into getting and took one shot. And then it just turned and ran off into the woods and it was gone. And then it was just me sitting there on the beach. Part of it was very bittersweet. You know, it kind of felt a little bit like something was being put in my face. And I remember thinking, where are you, Michio? Where are you now that I've finally found a blue bear? Took one sixtieth of a second to take that picture. It's blurry, it's kind of out of focus. You can tell it's a blue bear from the color, but the entire story of my friendship with Micho, all of those remarkable times I had spent with Micho, uh, was wrapped up in that one sixtieth of a second. And the fact that it's not much of a composition and that it's blurry and you know poorly shot uh, doesn't change that. Thank you, Lynn Sculler, for sharing your story. For more on Lynn and Michio's adventures, grab a copy of Lynn's book, The Blue Bear. I'll have a link on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score for that story was composed and performed by Renzo Gorio and Davy Kim. The piece was produced by Nancy Lopez. Snappers. If you missed even a moment or you want second helpings, subscribe to the Snap Judgment Storytelling Podcast at snapjudgment.org. And if you're in the San Francisco Bay, Christmas comes early. Snap Judgment Live, December 1st at Oakland's beautiful Paramount Theater. Tickets available at snapjudgment.org. Snap was produced by the team that always cleans their plate. Throw some mac and cheese at Mark Ristich, Pat Masini Miller, Anna Sussman, Joe Rosenberg, Renzo Gorio, Leon Morimoto, Shayna Sheely, Adiza Egan, Liz Mack, Eliza Smith, Teo DeCott, and Jasmine Aguilera. And this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could wonder what is that delicious roast your uncle served up? Oh, my lord, it tastes so good. Only to discover it is the elusive blue bear. No, I'm kidding. It's chicken. But even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.